I'm going to read uh, this week, uh, continuing uh, a, a, an exploration of some of the writings of Horatius Bonar, one of the uh, great Scottish preachers during the 19th century. This is uh, Bonar's um, preface to the life of David Brainard, 1858, um, missionary to the Indians. And the book is by Jonathan Edwards, but the professor, pro, the preface is by the Reverend Horatius Bonar of Kelso. So, Father, I pray that you bless this reading of this preface to us, Lord, that you would bring it alive to us and show us what we need to know, Lord, about how we should walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, how we should serve him, how we should follow him, how we should lay down our lives for his glory and honour in this world, Lord, how we should be living, our, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to you, which is our reasonable service. And, Father, I pray that this reading and that this work that was written many years ago by a man used by you, Lord, about other men who were used by you, Lord, that this would be a blessing to every one of us, whoever we are, wherever we are in the world. I pray, Father, that you would take these words and fire us up with love for the Lord Jesus Christ and draw us closer to him and cause us, Lord, to desire that every moment of our time would be used in his service and for the furtherance of his kingdom and for the glory and honour of your eternal name. Father, we are sinners and we thank you that we have a saviour who died to cleanse us from our sin and that, that cleansing and that blood which makes us clean, Lord, is all we need for our salvation. Thank you for our beloved saviour. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Oh, Lord, come upon Come to us now, Lord. Visit us. Be with us, Lord, and bless this time. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Horatius Bonar um, writes as follows. Very much of man's true life must be lived alone, under no eye but the Father's, with no companionship save that of the Son, and without guidance or help or teaching save from the Holy Ghost. There's never been otherwise here, whatever it may be hereafter. From the time that the earth fell off from God, and the air became the seat of devils, and sin took up its dwelling in every scene and object, and things seen became enemies and tempters, and the creation was made subject to vanity, and the world became an unreality, and the things of the world, gay shadows or idle flatteries, and man began to walk in a vain show. From that time, the realities of man's being have been constrained to betake themselves to secret places, finding there a more healthful atmosphere and a more genial companionship. By the chill vagueness, the unsatisfying hollowness of what it finds in the bustle around, it has been driven into the quiet of closet solitude, where it meets with him who is infinitely real and true, and personal, and with things which are all as real and true and personal as himself. Now, I, the reader, I can't help breaking off here and simply pointing out some people listening to this are in lockdown, like myself, and uh, we get very little contact with anybody else directly because of lockdowns due to the COVID virus. Well, perhaps what I've just read is telling us, is telling you and me quite plainly that God is using this um, not only as a trial of affliction but as a blessing to bring us closer to him to spend time with him and to fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that we may not have had a chance to before lonely we may be 
but we have the presence of God and we have the promises of God and we have the word of God. I better go back to the reading otherwise I'll carry on for an hour. But my dear friends, God has given us a time and an opportunity to seek him. So I read on. It was thus with him who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. We read once that in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Mark one thirty five. Again, we read that when he had sent the multitudes away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Mark 6.46 In the daytime he sought the desert, for we read that when it was day he departed and went into a desert place. Luke 4.42 At night he sought the desert, for we read that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Luke 6.12 One who followed his Lord closely and walked in his footsteps thus writes I have more to do with God than with all the world, yea, more and greater business with him in one day than with all the world in all my life. Therefore let man stand by. I have to do with the eternal God, and with him I am to transact in this little time the business of my endless life. Alas, what have I to do with man? What can it do but make my head ache to hear a deal of senseless chat about the words and thoughts of men, or their lands and titles, and a thousand impertinences, which only prove that the dreaming world is not awake. What pleasure is it to see the bustles of a bedlam world, and how they strive to prove or make themselves unhappy? I have never returned from the presence of God when I have really drawn near to him, as I have from the company of mortals, repenting the loss of my time and trembling for my discomposure contracted by their vain and earthly discourse. Oh, that I had lived more with God, though I had been less with some that are eminent in the world, or even with the dearest of my friends. Oh, how much more pleasing is it now to my remembrance to think of the hours in which I have lain at the divine footstool, though it were in tears and agonies, than to think of the time I have spent in converse with the greatest, most learned, or nearest of my acquaintances. Uh, and I think that's a quote from Baxter's Converse with God in Solitude, it says. So Bonar continues, Nor is this a rare experience. Thus all have found it who have tried really to live. They have learned, after much weariness and many disappointments and keen vexations and sharp buffetings, that the life which is lived amid too frequent fellowship with outward things is an unsatisfying and fictitious one. They have discovered that it contains much of what is false and unreal, much of what is unhealthy and unstable, much that will not last beyond the hour, and which, when it evaporates, leaves the spirit poorer and emptier than before. And Bernard comments, Thus Bernard writes concerning his days of solitude, My state of solitude does not make the hours hang heavy upon my hands. Oh, what reason of thankfulness have I on account of this retirement? I find that I do not, and it seems I cannot lead a Christian life when I am abroad, and cannot spend time in devotion, Christian conversation and serious meditation as I should do. Those weeks that I am obliged now to be from home in order to learn the Indian tongue 
are mostly spent in perplexity and barrenness, without much relish of divine things, and I feel myself a stranger at the throne of grace for want of a more frequent and continued retirement. Brenner's Diary, January the 4th, 1731. Brenner continues, Nor is it possible that it should ever be otherwise in such a world as this, for existence and life are not the same. Spending life and filling up life are not the same. It is one thing to keep the limbs and faculties in motion, and it is another thing to live. Life is not the mere transit through a certain space or the consumption of a certain amount of time or the performance of a certain number of evolutions. It is not measured by days and years, nor yet by the multitude of points at which it comes into contact with the outward world. Those things which go down into the depths of our spiritual being are the things which make up life. They fill up every void. They do not change nor disappoint. They offer us not only present satisfaction, but eternal companionship, so that the amount of reality in life must be far more proportioned to the extent of our direct intercourse with him, in whose favour is life, than to the amount of our fellowship with men or contact with the movements of the world. Those parts of life which are not true may be lived anywhere. It matters little what may be the place or the circumstances or the company or the nature of the employment that may be filling our hands. That which is unreal can suit itself to any soil or find congeniality in any atmosphere. Earth has a thousand busy circles, smaller and wider, where in past time or politics or business all reality is lost. Any one of these will do for the development of that life which is not life. But the life which is real springs up in quiet and kindly shade. It comes forth unbidden and unforced. When the soul, left alone with God, gets full play to itself and brings all its manifold parts into unobstructed contact with him, in whom we live and move and have our being. Not that all of life which is spent alone must be true, or that all which is not spent alone must be untrue. It would be unfair to affirm either of these points. Nay, it would be false. One may waste life in solitude as completely as in a crowd, and one may fill up life while in vigorous service and labour for God. Monasteries prove the former, that is, that life is wasted in a solitary place, such lives as those of Luther and Knox and Calvin prove the latter. But still we may say that there is a greater mixture of the untrue in those parts of life which are not lived alone. Into them the artificial and unreal are more largely introduced, so that the natural and simple are not seldom hidden or stifled. When alone the simple growth is unchecked, and the natural process of unfolding goes on. But bring in other beings and objects, and we obstruct what is natural. We call forth what is artificial. The greater the amount of foreign influence brought to bear upon a man, the less of himself, and the more of what is not himself, we are likely to have. Again, I'm going to comment and just say, working um, in the health profession that I do, I find myself so distracted and my time so taken up with... Um, with um, work matters um, of course I can serve God in that capacity but uh, to spend time alone with God is very precious I carry on 
Were man's soul like metal to be fused and cast into a mould, or were it like marble to be chiselled and polished after the design of the sculptor, then the greater the amount and pressure of foreign influence, the better for his perfect manifestation. But if he be rather like a seed or a plant, all whose individualities have been wrapped up by the Creator in itself, requiring free scope for growth, so as to bring out fully every branch and leaf and flower, then to attempt to fashion him into a shape of our own devising by bringing him into contact with other objects would be to change his very nature, to destroy that which is real about him, to cramp his vitalities, nay, perhaps, to destroy his very life. These surely are points to which our attention may well be called, for if depth in spirituality and warmth in religion and truth in life be things desirable, then must we set about seeking them in good earnest and without delay. And we've got another diary quote here from David Brainard. Feeling and considering my extreme weakness and want of grace, the pollution of my soul and danger of temptations on every side, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer, neither eating nor drinking from evening to evening, beseeching God to have mercy on me. And my soul intensely longed, that the spots and stains of sin might be washed away. Bernard continues, And if they are to be reached by us, then of a surety, the outward must occupy less of our time, and the inward more. There must be more of privacy than Christians seem now to think needful. And in that privacy, there must be more of direct converse with the things of the eternal kingdom, and more of unbroken fellowship, with the Father and the Son. No doubt a man may be often alone, and yet gain nothing by it. His private hours may be as empty and unfruitful as his public ones, but still no man can attain too much, too much of what is true in life who is not often alone. In public we give rather than receive, and hence the necessity for going alone in order to be replenished. In public there is an incessant tear and wear, not only of body but of soul, and in order to have it repaired we must retire to privacy and to God. There are some things, says Samuel Rutherford, in which I have been helped as, one, I have been benefited by riding alone a long journey in giving that time to prayer, two, by abstinence and giving days to God. Giving days to God and that's from Letters New Edition of um, of Samuel Rutherford. And then Bernard says, Of Robert Blair we read that he spent many days and nights in prayer, alone and with others, and was one very intimate with God. Livingston's characteristics. And thus writes another, I had a deep impression of the things of God, a natural condition, and sin appeared worse than hell itself, the world and the vanities thereof, terrible and exceeding dangerous it was fearful to have ado with them and to be rich i saw its day coming scripture expressions were weighty a saviour was a big thing in my eyes christ's agonies were then earnest with me and i thought that all my days i was in a dream till now or like a child in jest and i thought the world was sleeping and in another place, he tells us how he sought to deepen and perpetuate this sense of everlasting realities. Quote, 
In imitation of Christ and his apostles, I purpose to rise timely every morning, once in the month, either at the end or middle of it. I keep a day of humiliation for the public condition. I spend besides this one for my own private condition in conflicting with spiritual evils. And to get my heart more holy once in six weeks, I spend once every week four hours over and above my daily portion in private for special causes. I spend six or seven days together once a year, wholly and only on spiritual accounts. Fraser's Life, Woodrow Edition, page 275. And I'll just add a comment to that. These were men who desired holiness of heart, and they knew that the only way they could get that was by making time for it and working hard at it. It doesn't just happen. And if you're not feeling challenged by what I've just read, I can tell you I am. I carry on. It was in such ways that these men of God maintained the vigour of the spiritual life. In these instances, we see what is reality in the life of man, and that that which is true in life has more affinity with the solitude of the closet than with the stir of more public scenes. Brainerd's life brings out all his, this most vividly. Uh, and Bernard adds, I cannot resist the temptation to throw into a note the following instant in the life of Flavel, known to some, no doubt, but not generally known, what a reality would there be in a life made up of such passages? So he's quoting from the life of Flavel. I have, a, I have, with good assurance, this account of a minister who, being alone in a journey and willing to make the best improvement he could of that day's solitude, set himself to a close examination of the state of his soul and then of the life to come and the manner of its being and living in heaven in the views of all those things which are now pure objects of faith and hope. After a while he perceived his thoughts begin to fix and come closer to these great and astonishing things than was usual, and as his mind settled upon them, his affections began to rise with an answerable liveliness and vigour. Quote, he, therefore, whilst he was yet master of his own thoughts, lifted up his heart to God in a short ejaculation that God would so order it in his providence that he might meet with no interruption from company or any other accident in that journey which was granted him. For in all that day's journey he neither met, overtook, or was overtaken by any. Thus going on his way, his thoughts began to swell and rise higher and higher, like the waters in Ezekiel's vision, till at last they became an overflowing flood. Such was the intention of his mind, such the ravishing taste of heavenly joys, and such the full assurance of his interest therein, that he utterly lost a sight and sense of this world, and all the concerns thereof, and for some hours knew no man where he was, than if he had been in a deep sleep upon his bed. At last he began to perceive himself very faint, and almost choked with blood, which, running in abundance from his nose, had coloured his clothes and his horse from his shoulder to the hoof. He found himself almost spent, and nature to faint under the pressure of joy unspeakable and insupportable, and at last, perceiving a spring of water in his way, he with difficulty alighted to cleanse and cool his face and hands, which were drenched in blood, tears and sweat. By that spring he sat down and washed earnestly desiring, by that spring he sat down and washed earnestly desiring, if it were the pleasure of God, that it might be his parting place from this world. 
He said death had the most amiable face in his eye that ever he beheld except the face of Jesus Christ, which made it so, and that he could not remember, though he believed he should die there, that he had one thought of his dear wife or children or any other earthly concernment. But having drunk of that spring, his spirits revived, the blood staunched, and he mounted his horse again, and on he went in the same frame of spirit till he had finished a journey of near thirty miles, and came at night to his inn, where, being come, he greatly admired how he came hither, thither, that his horse, without his direction, had brought him thither, and that he felt not all that day, which passed not, without several trances of considerable continuance." Being alighted, the innkeeper came to him with some astonishment, being acquainted with him formerly. "'Oh, sir,' said he, "'what is the matter with you? You look like a dead man.' "'Friend,' replied he, "'I was never better in my life. Show me my chamber, cause my cloak to be cleansed, burn me a little wine, and that is all I desire of you for the present.' Accordingly it was done, and supper sent up, which he could not touch, but requested of the people that they would not trouble or disturb him for that night. All this night passed without one wink of sleep, though he never had a sweeter night's rest in all his life. Still, still the joy of the Lord overflowed him, and he seemed to be an inhabitant of another world. The next morning, being come, he was early on horseback again, fearing the divertisement in the inn might bereave him of his joy. For, he said, it was now with him as with a man that carries a rich treasure about him, who suspects every passenger to be a thief. But within a few hours he was sensible of the ebbing of the tide, and before night, though there was a heavenly serenity and sweet peace upon his spirit, which continued long with him, yet the transports of joy were over, and the fine edge of his delight blunted. He, many years after, called that day one of the days of heaven, and professed he understood more of the light of heaven by it than by all the books he ever read or discourses he ever had entertained about it. End of quote. Bernard continues. We do not ask anyone to take his life as a perfect life or his experience as a, perf- as a perfect experiences, nor do we set him up as a model or measure by which our Christianity is to be shaped. I think he's talking about Brainerd now. In many points we mark imperfection. We can trace in it an undue tendency to the subjective in religion. We can observe on occasional, an occasional leaning to the dark and gloomy, not without a slight touch of something approaching to mysticism. We can at times suspect the existence of something unhealthy and even feverish in his spiritual system. We can observe a less frequent reference to Christ, both personally and officially, than we think scriptural. We can afford to make all these deductions, and yet we hold up his life and experience as fitted above those of many to be of service in the present day. We might make use of it as a protest against many things in our condition, which are too little heeded and hardly recognised as evil at all. It is a protest, one, against the easy-minded religion of our day. A believed gospel most certainly brings with it immediate peace, else its news are neither good nor true. To receive the peace bringing news, and yet to be without peace, is an inconsistency hard to be accounted for. Joy and peace in believing, poured into us by the God of hope, 
is our present heritage but to be at peace with God and with our own conscience is one thing and to be easy-minded is quite another the former is the true and healthy condition of the renewed soul the latter its state of fatal disease and sad decay the gospel is truly believed no doubt I'm just going to check that again the gospel truly believed no doubt unbinds and unburdens us for it brings us forgiveness and an endless life but in doing so it makes us thoroughly in earnest it gives us back our lost buoyancy of being it renews our broken elasticity of spirit it quickens our sinking pulse the gospel draws out into vigorous and noble action the buried and stifled feelings of the soul and in doing all this it transfuses throughout our inner man as well as imprints upon our outer man a calm resolute solemnity mingled with a strenuous and irrepressible earnestness that cannot rest till it has carried all before it instead of this we see men professing godliness in inverted commas taking things so easily and coolly that we are led to wonder how far they attach any importance to them at all there is no lack of fervour in carrying out other pursuits the whole heart is thrown into business and literature and pleasure but religion sits lightly on them they are sound in the faith and ready at a moment's notice to man its bulwarks when assault is threatened they are forward in schemes of usefulness all is regular and reputable in their walk yet the vitalities of religion are sadly awanting their religion seems to be a thing picked up by the way easily put on and easily worn and were persecution arising for the word's sake in all likelihood as easily put off it is a religion which knew nothing of the pangs of the new birth as its origin and which knows nothing of struggle and warfare for its maintenance taking up the cross fighting the good fight of faith a wrestling with the principalities and powers resisting the devil keeping under the body crucifying the flesh mortifying the members these are things unthought of with such it is an easy thing to be religious an easy thing to walk with god an easy thing to pray an easy thing to deny self an easy thing to follow christ it costs them nothing either in the way of sacrifice or conflict to be religious they own themselves sinners but they take it easily they acknowledge the cross but they take it easily they ask forgiveness and though they never seem to obtain it they take it easily they speak of sonship and though they will not venture to say abba father they take it easily they are no further on at this day than when first they became religious yet they take it easily of the religion of this class it may be said that it had no starting points no decided commencement in the souls of those to whom it belongs the characteristics of the change in their case are so vague and ambiguous that to speak of it as conversion or regeneration is to turn the most solemn words into an unmeaning sound a few anxious days and nights a few struggles against outward sin a few tears of sentimental tenderness these are all men congratulate themselves on these undefined impressions arid deem themselves converted and in their afterlife they reassure themselves or rather they soothe their consciences to sleep 
by recalling these feelings and persuading themselves that about such a time they passed through a certain change and that therefore all must be well with them. Their religion had an easy beginning, it has an easy progress, but if grace prevent not it will have a woeful end, for the hope of such men must perish, their blossom shall go up as dust. This is why it's so important that we, we, we point out that to be a Christian is more than just to make a decision for Christ. Those of you who are listening to this perhaps on the sermon, um, Christian Sermons and Audiobooks page on YouTube can go to the sermon by um, A.W. Tozer on this subject, um, which is very powerful. Um, there is a difference between just paying lip service to the Lord Jesus Christ and being laid hold of by the Holy Spirit and converted through the power of God. I read on, Bonar says, How far this religious easy-mindedness prevails among us, I do not say. That it does prevail to a very considerable extent will hardly be denied. There's a quote from Brainard here. I fear, says Brainard, writing to his brother John, you are not sufficiently aware how much false religion there is in the world. Bernard continues, Nor will it be questioned that such a condition is as false as it is fearful. The Bible knows it not. The gospel utterly condemns it. He who holdeth the seven stars in his hand threatens it with wasting judgment. It may be man's religion, but it is not God's. It holds out an awful contrast to the religion of David Brainard. Every page of his memoir, every entry in his diary, every letter from his pen breathes an intensity of earnestness which not only protests against the tame and facile piety above adverted to, but makes us feel that if it be true godliness, then Brainard's was fanaticism. And that, on the other hand, if Brainard's be the simple reality of religion, then the other is a mere piece of ill-acted mimicry or cold externalism. When, when Bonar is talking about Brainard's fanaticism here, he's using fanaticism an entirely positive thing. It's good to be a fanatic for the Lord Jesus Christ in the best possible sense. And, of course, it uh, exposes the falsehood of um, false professors. Bonar continues, Hear how he writes, Prayed privately with a dear Christian friend or two, and I think I scarcely ever launched so far into the eternal world as then. I got so far out on the broad ocean that my soul with joy triumphed over all the evils on the shores of mortality. Time and all its gay amusements and cruel disappointments never appeared so inconsiderable to me before. I was in a sweet frame. I saw myself nothing, and my soul went out after God with intense desire. Oh, I saw what I owed to him in such a manner as I scarcely ever did. I knew I had never lived a moment to him as I should do. Indeed, it appeared to me I had never done anything in Christianity. My soul longed with a vehement desire to live to God. Again, he writes, My spiritual conflicts today were unspeakably dreadful. Heavier than the mountains and overflowing floods, I seemed enclosed as it were in hell itself. I was deprived of all sense of God even of that being of God, and that was my misery. Oh, I feel that if there is no God, though I might live forever here and enjoy not only this but all other worlds, I should be ten thousand times more miserable 
than the meanest reptile. My soul was in such anguish that I could pot, I could not eat, but felt, as I supposed, a poor wretch would that is just going to the place of execution. I do not cite these passages as embodying feelings necessary for all to pass through, says uh, Bonar, for I would especially guard against the idea that we are to imitate others and that any one Christian can be or ought to be the reproduction of another. But I quote them as containing the most awful condemnation which could be pronounced upon the easy-minded religion of multitudes in the present age of wide profession. Two, against the second-rate religion of the day. There is no profit in declaiming against the times and comparisons between this age and other ages should be cautiously indulged in. But one cannot help feeling that amid the luxuriant foliage of profession the sere and yellow leaf prevails. There is a want of greatness as well as a want of simplicity in much of modern religion. It has, as one remarks, no fervour, no keenness, no elevation, no splendour of soul. It lacks the freshness, the vigour, the vitality, the power which marked it in earlier times. Was um, Bonar really writing this in 1858 or was he writing this today? I ask. And must it remain so? Must we be content with inferiority? Is there not such a thing as spiritual ambition? A desire to get up to a higher level, nay, to raise up our fellow saints to such a level? Surely we are to covet the best gifts and to be satisfied with no second-rate religion, no inferior attainments, no commonplace Christianity. In Brainard we see one specially fitted to arouse us. He has reached no common eminence, and he stands above us, calling to us who are still in the valley beneath, or only on the lower slope of the mountain. Come up hither! He was a man of like passions as we are. He was fashioned of the same vile clay. He had the same obstructions to encounter, the same steeps to climb, the same enemies to do battle with. Yet he reached the height, and no one can read this diary without feeling how lofty that height was. And if he gained it, why not we? And can we read such utterances as these and not be quickened? Had some intense and passionate breathings after holiness, quote, Again, I feel it is heaven to please him and to be just as he would have me to be. Oh, that my soul were holy as he is holy. Oh, that it were pure, even as Christ is pure. Again, felt exceeding dead to the world and all its enjoyments. I longed to be perpetually and entirely crucified to all things here below by the cross of Christ. It was my meat and drink to be holy, to live to the Lord and die to the Lord. And I thought that I then enjoyed such a heaven as far exceeded the most sublime conceptions of an unregenerate soul. From these delectable mountains, these hills of frankincense, he beckons us upward, telling us of the green slopes and the pleasant air and the fresh fragrance and the fair prospect which we may thus obtain. He entreats us not to remain in the plains or linger on any of the lower ridges. Let us arise and follow him. Three, against the uncertain religion of the day. Brainard was often in deep waters, broken with many a tempest and buffeted with many a surge, but he never for a moment let go his anchorage. 
he was more too fast at the outset of his career to be easily drifted. The abyss of iniquity within him often made him cry out, Oh, wretched man! But his sense of forgiveness and consciousness of reconciliation and sonship never forsook him. He held the beginning of his confidence firm to the end, knowing that a man is saved not by doubting, but by believing. He believed and was established. He discerned nothing humbling, nothing sanctifying, nothing elevating in uncertainty as to the relationship subsisting between him and God. He did not conceive that uncertainty could enlarge his heart or heal his wounds or stimulate activity or warm his zeal or brighten his hope or kindle his love. Uncertainty might stupefy him, but it could not arouse him. It might paralyse and benumb him, but it could not quicken and invigorate him. It might dispirit him, but could not animate him. It might elate, but could not humble him. Hence there is nothing of it throughout his whole diary. He knew whom he believed, and was persuaded that he would keep that which was committed to him against the great day. He did not always rejoice, but he always rested and trusted as a child. He was often brought down to the very gates of hell under a sense of unutterable vileness in himself. Yet he did not allow this to estrange him from his God, or loosen his hold of the Saviour, or throw up a wall of darkness between him and the cross. His walk with God was not in uncertainty. His hold of God was a conscious thing. His relationship to God was a settled and ascertained fact, from which, as from a centre, all the movements of his spiritual life went forth. His is a case from which we may learn not only how perfectly consistent are a profound sense of sin and an unbroken assurance of forgiveness, but how the latter is the true source of the former. So that it is in proportion, <clears throat> as we realise the forgiveness of the cross, that our sense of sin is deepened. The consciousness of reconciliation and sonship, the certain knowledge of pardon, the firm hope of the inheritance, these are the things that humble and empty and purify. And what, after all, can this uncertain religion do for us? Can it comfort? No, it only saddens. Can it speak peace? No. It only troubles. Can it light up the drooping eye? No. It only makes it droop the more heavily. Can uncertain religion unwrinkle the vexed brow? No. It only adds fresh wrinkles. Can it heal wounds? No. It only inflicts new ones. Can it give us the single eye? No. It only makes the eye evil. Can it break our bonds? No only adds new links to our cutting chain. Can it give us rest? No. It only augments our weariness. Can it fire us with zeal? No. It cools and quenches it. Does it make duty sweet and turn labour into refreshment? No. It takes away all relish for the service of God, unnerving and unmanning us, as well as turning all that work for Christ, which should have been so pleasant and easy, into irksomeness and pain. It seems strange that so many should be content under this uncertainty, nay, cleave to it as desirable and needful, counting it proud presumption in anyone to say, I am a sod, according to man's scheme. Uncertainty, uncertainty may be humility and filial confidence presumption. 
but certainly not according to God's. If it be a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, then the authentic evidence of our being children of God is not the extent of our doubting, but the simplicity of our believing. If anyone would know the difference between a certain and uncertain religion, between the results of doubting and the results of believing, let him study the lives of Brainard or Edwards. 4. Against the self-pleasing religion of the day. One cannot read a page of his diary without feeling rebuked and ashamed. Brainard's diary. He, quote, sought not his own, but the things that are Jesus Christ's. He pleased not himself. End quote. His was preeminently a life of self-denial. And his was a tr as truly a ministry of self-denial. Half a century ago, a German minister thus wrote in his diary, He who is acquainted with spiritual life will know from experience how necessary is daily obedience to that word of Jesus. Let a man deny himself. If he indulge his own desires, if he do not crucify them, then does spiritual life decline. That's in Rorschenbusch's memoir, page 126. The whole life of Brainard is a comment upon this. There are no foolish ideas about self-annihilation, such as we find in the schools of mysticism. Yet there is what is more scriptural and more difficult of attainment, the regulation of self, the subordination of self, the expansion of self, from being a piece of hateful grovelling earthliness to a generous and heavenly feeling which has but one desire and aim, that God may be glorified. Thus Brainar writes, When I felt any disposition to consult my ease and worldly comfort, God has never suffered me to feel happy. It appeared to me that God's dealings towards me had fitted me for a life of solitariness and hardship. It appeared also that I had nothing to lose, nothing to do with earth, and consequently nothing to lose, by a total renunciation of it. It was therefore right that I should be destitute of house and home, and many comforts of life, which I rejoiced to see others of God's people enjoy. At the same time I saw so much of the excellency of Christ's kingdom, and the infinite desirableness of its advancement in the world, that it swallowed me up all, swallowed up all my other thoughts, and made me willing, yea, even rejoiced to be a pilgrim or hermit in the wilderness to my dying moment, if I might thereby promote the blessed interest of the great Redeemer. At the same time, I had as quick and lively a sense of the value of worldly comforts as ever I had, but saw them infinitely overmatched by the worth of Christ's kingdom. There is no self-pleasing here. Sorry. End quote. Bonar says, There is no self-pleasing here, no flesh-pleasing, no love of ease, no concern about earthly enjoyments. He is engrossed with something higher and more glorious. He has risen above things seen and temporal. He has got within view of things eternal. He has his eye on but one thing, in comparison with which everything else is vanity. It is the glory of God that absorbs him. It is the kingdom of Christ on which his heart is set. What a single eye! What a straightforward aim! What an unselfish attitude! Here is a pattern for a minister or missionary. Here is one whose example puts us awfully to shame, 
and yet it stirs us up, nay, it gladdens us too, as we think that such a man as this once walked on our earth and breathed our air. Yet there was nothing morose about Brainerd. In one place he tells us of his having diversions for his health, and his biographer thus describes him, I found him remarkably sociable, pleasant and entertaining in his conversation, yet solid, savoury, spiritual and very profitable, appearing meek, modest and humble, far from any stiffness, moroseness, superstitious demur, mess or affected singularity in speech or behaviour, and seeming to nauseate all such things. In several parts of his diary he breathes out his love to his fellow men, I felt much of the sweetness of a gospel temper, was far from bitterness, and found a dear love to all mankind. Again I felt serious, kind, and tender towards all mankind. Again spent an hour in prayer with great intenseness and freedom, and with the most soft and tender affection towards mankind. I longed that those that bear me ill will might be eternally happy. It seemed refreshing to think of meeting them in heaven. Thus with all the depth and self-denial that marked his religion, there was nothing ungentle or unlovable. He pleased not himself, but he sought to please others, to love others, to care for others, to overflow with tenderness to all around. And there's a quote, sorry, um, Bonar comments, How tender and how natural some of the scenes upon his deathbed. It seems he was engaged to the daughter of Edwards. And three days before his death, we are told that when she came into the room, he, quote, looked on her very pleasantly and said, Quote, Dear Jerusha, are you willing to part with me? I am quite willing to part with you. I am willing to part with all my friends. I am willing to part with my dear brother, John. Although I love him the best of any creature living, I have committed him and all my friends to God, and can leave them with God. Though if I thought I should not see you and be happy with you in another world, I could not bear to part with you. But we shall spend a happy eternity together. And Quote, she survived Brainard only four months and died in her 18th year. She was a person, says her father, Jonathan Edwards, of much the same spirit with Mr. Brainard. She had constantly taken care of and attended him in his sickness for 19 weeks before his death, devoting herself to it with great delight, because she looked on him as an eminent servant of Jesus Christ. In this time he had much conversation with her on things of religion, and in his dying state often expressed to us, her parents, his great satisfaction concerning her true piety, and his confidence that he should meet her in heaven, and his high opinion of her not only as a true Christian, but a very eminent saint, one whose soul was uncommonly fed and entertained with things that appertain to the most spiritual, experimental, and distinguished parts of religion, and one who by the temper of her mind was fitted to deny herself for God and to do good beyond any young woman whatsoever he knew of. She had manifested a heart uncommonly devoted to God in the course of her life, many years before her death, and said on her deathbed that she had not seen one minute for several years wherein she desired to live one minute longer for the sake of any other good in life, but doing good, living to God, and doing what might be for his glory." godly men and godly women. In these respects, she seems remarkably to resemble her mother, whose experience was of such a preeminently spiritual kind, and of whom her husband, before their marriage, drew the following exquisite portrait. 
It was written when he was 20 and was found on the blank page of one of his books. They say there is a young lady in who is beloved of that great being who made and rules the world and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him that she expects after a while to be received up where he is to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always there she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight for ever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and single pur singular purity in her affections is most just and conscientious in all her conduct. And you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after the great being has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly, and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields, and groves, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. End quote. Five against the imitative religion of the day. Sabona continues, When religion ceases to be persecuted and comes into general fervour so as to be reckoned among the necessities or the necessaries, necessaries or at least the decencies of life, then men set themselves to acquire it as part of their education. In doing so, they get hold of certain models after which they endeavour to shape their religious life. These models are various, and hence the variety of the, limit, the imitations. From the lowest pattern of mere externalism up to the highest form, externalism up to the highest form of spirituality, they range, and thus form that vast babel fabric of professional religiousness, which, reared by human hands, rises circle after circle, seeking to scale the heavens. According, you know, a man might have a degree in theology and know nothing of the true things of God. According to the nature of our education, the friends we move amongst, the books we read, the characters we admire, the natural tone of our mind will be our selection of the pattern after which we frame our religion. But whatever be the model we adopt, an imitated religion is the result. Hence that part of our character, which should be of all others, the, should of all others be most genuine, becomes the most artificial. It is but a copy does not sprung up from a root within us, it has come solely from without. Hence it is hollow, and its hollowness makes it of but little service amid the sufferings or griefs of life. It rings with the sad sound of emptiness whenever it is called into use, either in the day of toil or the night of suffering. It fails us as a broken reed or mocks as an idle shadow. Sad truth, the most real thing in the universe is turned into the greatest of all unrealities, that which should be most spontaneous and authentic becomes a forced and unnatural production. Men profess to fear God, nay perhaps persuade themselves that they are doing so, yet it turns out that they have never yet come into living contact with this being whom they say they fear, but are merely imitating the emotions and actions of another who has left on record how he feared God and how he felt and how he acted. Men profess to have been converted, to have undergone the vital change which fits them for the kingdom of God, 
Yet, after all, it turns out that they are only imitating the movements of the divine life, only imitating the movements of the divine life. The play of the spiritual organs in a fellow man. They speak of God and of Christ and of his gospel and of the narrow way and of the endless life, not because the Holy Spirit from within has taught them to do so, but because they have seen or heard a man who is held up to them as an example, thus speak of God and of Christ and of his gospel and of the narrow way and of the endless life. Fearful facility of imitation. What a source of self-deception is here. How needful for us on reading such a life as Brainerd's to beware lest we being, be giving way to this imitative tendency, <coughs> excuse me, intent merely on producing in ourselves a facsimile of the holy man, a facsimile in working out which the Spirit has had no hand, but which passes for the work of the Spirit and thereby deludes ourselves and imposes upon others. As then we know a few things more subtle and more fatal to the genuineness of spiritual religion, or more likely to produce a mere artificial spirituality than the plan of taking any man as the model of Christian experience and insisting on conformity to his likeness as a test of excellence, we would deprecate the idea of calling Brainerd Master or setting up his diary as a touchstone of religious experience. In reading his life, we require to guard against our tendency to religious imitativeness, as utterly destructive of all that is fresh and real and natural in religion. In one way, Brainerd's diary may be more likely than many others to lead to imitation. The depth, the intensity and the loftiness of his experience make it strongly attractive to a large class of minds. A commonplace life may often furnish most pleasant reading, but it draws after it no imitators, even among the most ordinary minds. All men, however commonplace themselves, turn away from any but a striking character as their model. And the revelation of the workings of a human soul given us in this diary is of no common kind. It often takes a hue of solemnity quite overpowering and sometimes rises to a sublimity quite unearthly. This is its dangerous side. But in another aspect, it presents a warning against imitation. It is throughout so genuine, so true, so natural, that we feel rebuked and condemned at the thought of attempting to imitate it. It overawes us too much to think of this, and yet it does stir up within us the desire to put our souls entirely into the Spirit's hands, that he may work in us, not the same experience, for the experiences which he produces are all different the one from the other, but an experience as thorough, as pervading, and as profound." He who uses Brainerd's life as a copy which he must labour to imitate as closely and correctly as he can will succeed in producing nothing but a piece of unhealthy religionism. He who uses it to arouse and stimulate, to detect flaws and deficiencies, to quicken his conscience and urge him forward in the same path of high attainment will find it an unspeakable blessing. It is a life which in all its parts, inner and outer, is worthy of being kept before our eye. It is so solemn, yet so lovable, so striking, yet so unaffected and unobtrusive, so noble, yet so gentle, so elevated, yet so childlike, so intensely fervent and unearthly, yet so simple, so genuine and true. In casting the eye over Brainerd's diary, we find so many points to notice that it is difficult to select. The features of his Christianity are all of them prominent and decided. 
His was neither a second-rate nor a second-hand spirituality. There was a breadth and power and intensity about it that one seldom lights upon. Though his course was brief and his life passed in deserts, not in cities, though it was in one sense obscure and unknown, yet it contained too much of what was heavenly to allow it to pass unnoticed upon earth. It had nothing of the ostentatious, yet it was so unlike the usual run of religious profession. It had so little of the tame and the commonplace about it. It was so vivid in its spiritual tints that it could not be hidden. Whether it might attract or repel, whether it might be scoffed at or wondered at, it was too unambiguous to be mistaken. Unconsciously and in simply giving himself up to the Holy Spirit's guidance, he had been led up to a height which few attain. Of spiritual childhood or knowledge, one finds almost nothing in his life. He seems to stand before us at once in the full strength and proportions of Christian manhood. He has outgrown his childhood ere he has well entered it, leaving behind him at once the fragility, the delicacy and incompleteness of the babe, and taking on the ripeness and vigour and hardihood of the man. In self-denial, self-mastery, self-discipline, he exhibits a rapidity of growth which amazes us, and yet which at the same time lets us know that the same spirit which wrought in him is willing and able to work in us as mightily and as swiftly would we but unreservedly throw ourselves into his almighty hands that he may work in us according to the greatness of his power and according to the good pleasure of his will. There is undoubtedly a question here, very naturally coming up for consideration. How far and in what way is God honoured and Christ confessed by a life like that of Brainerd? It was not a public life. It was not a life of mark and fame and wide-ranging popularity. It was not a life like Whitfield's or even like Edward's. It was a life to which few eyes were turned and in which the world could take little interest, either to love or to hate, to praise or to revile. The man who lived it, praise or revile the man who lived it, in outward incident, it was not fitted to strike or overawe. It was not a stormy life like Luther's, nor a bold life like Knox's, nor a commanding life like Calvin's. It was different from all these, for it was made up of few events, and these few not likely to be known or even when known to awaken a world's interest or call forth its admiration. It was, besides, a brief life, a race swiftly run, so that the goal was reached ere the progress of the runner could be marked. Few years were his, for he died in the prime of his manhood, being one of those whom God, in his tender love, seems to grant the glad privileges of getting their work finished quickly and making haste to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. How then did Brainerd witness a good confession, honouring God and putting the adversary to shame? He did so, we would say, not by the success of his labours, though that was great, but by that life of marvellous nearness to and strange intimacy with God, which he lived during his brief day on earth. It is in living such a life that we witness a good confession and bring special glory to the name of that God whose we are and whom we serve. It is not, perhaps, easy to understand how a veiled life like this should be so glorifying, nor how it should be that the most hidden parts of it should be sometimes the most glorifying of all. Yet, such, we are assured, is the sober truth. 
and they may often be concentrated in one hour's blessed communion or in one hour's desperate struggle with the unseen adversary more of what honours God and bears testimony to his name than in long years of public labour acknowledged and applauded on every side. It is not upon the platform or amid the listening crowd nor even in the pulpit that we confess Christ with the purest lip and the most notable testimony. These doubtless are fit places for confessing him just as in truth any place is where we can name his name, but the confession in which there mingles least of what is earthly and human, most of what is heavenly and divine, is tire confession made upon the bended knee in the lonely closet, unlistened to by any ear but God's. There we are less tempted to be insincere, and though even there we are at times conscious of trying to impose even on him and speaking of ourselves not as we really are, but as we know he desires us to be, yet when alone with him our witness-bearing is of a truer and more thoroughly expressive kind. Besides, it is evident that God attaches more importance to the private history of our souls in their transactions with himself than we are accustomed to do. Not that he makes the private to to supersede the public or the individual to exclude the corporate, but still he gives us to understand that his glory is strangely wrapped up in all the secret movements of the soul and that there is a weight and importance connected with our closet history which we know not now but which we shall know hereafter. Thus Enoch walked with God and obtained the testimony of pleasing him. Thus Moses passed his forty years sojourn in Midian, glorifying God in the solitudes of Horeb, as truly as afterwards amid the thousands of Israel. Thus David honoured God when feeding his sheep on the plains of Bethlehem. Thus Elijah honoured him at the brook Cherith and at the widow's house in Zarephath. Thus did John the Baptist in the wilderness of Judea. And thus was it with the Lord himself, whose public life was so short, whose private life so long. Ah, is it not evident that, whether we see it or not, God has some most wondrous way of glorifying himself by those parts of our lives which are lived alone? There is something about the silent, solitary growth of his trees of righteousness that we are slow to understand. How much of delight in them and of glory from them he is continually receiving, we know not. Yet that this is not only great, but of the purest and most precious kind, we cannot doubt. Nor indeed is this altogether wonderful, for it is here that the soul gets fullest room and liberty to expand itself. It is here that we are brought into directest contact with God. It is here that there is least of earth and most of heaven, It is here that the spikenard flows forth with its unchecked fragrance. It is from this that our sweetest songs arise. It is here that we unbosom and unveil ourselves without reserve, delighting to make mention to God of all that he has done for us in loving, forgiving, quickening, gladdening us. It is here that we fondly dwell upon the whole story of our saved life, telling over and over again in his listening ear the wonders of his grace towards us, wonders of grace which all proclaim aloud the unutterable glory of his name. Here too our battles are fought and our noblest victories won, and who can tell the glory that goes up to God from such a battlefield? 
our conflict with sin, our struggles with unbelief, our crucifying of the flesh, our resistance to self, our strife with the world, our wrestling with principalities and powers, all in loneliness and amid tears and sighs and groanings that cannot be uttered. These fill up the story of an unseen life in which Christ is confessed and God is glorified in the way in which he most delights to be. Man's love of show and effect and outward scene would pronounce a life like this wasted and lost. But he who plants flowers in the desert, whose fragrance ascends to none but himself, he who studs the secret cave with its dazzling crystals, which none but himself has ever gazed upon, he who lights up stars in myriads in the depths of space, far beyond the range of man's widest vision, he glorifies himself in a way more befitting the loftiness of his nature and the simple majesty of his name. He can afford to be unseen himself, and he can afford to let that be hidden in which he takes the profoundest interest and from which he means to draw the largest revenue of his glory. Yet all is not hidden. The indwelling spirit is ever shining through. Rays of divine light find their way out from the recesses of the closet, and these are rays of the purest and heavenliest kind. One such beam thus issuing forth will bring more glory to God than myriads of less pure, less heavenly beams coming from those whose religion is of a more mingled and less expressive kind. And then the face of such a man, when standing forth before his fellow men in public life, is like the face of Moses. It shines, though he is unconscious of it, and though many around are ignorant of the source whence the impression comes, they cannot help feeling a strange and unearthly influence exercised over them. They feel, but do not understand, the spell that binds them. They do not understand either the man or his influence. There is a mystery about him, a secret wrapped up in him which they cannot fathom. He is unintelligible to them. They know not whether to mock or to revere, whether to draw near or to stand aloof. Yet they are inwardly forced to confess that surely God is with him. And thus he has proved the truest and most faithful witness for God that could have been found. There was no mistaking him. There was no misapprehending him, or a misapprehending, sorry, of his testimony. His deeds might not be many. His words might be fewer than his deeds. His public life might have little breadth or magnitude, but he has given forth a testimony for God more decided and more telling than that of a hundred others whose names have been honoured among the children of men. And by notes, it has been said by an anonymous, an anonymous literary writer in reference to the really great thinkers of the race that the mill streams which turn the wheels of the world rise in solitary places. How much more true of such men as Brainerd? From their solitudes there comes forth a power of which the world knows nothing. Yet it is all-pervading, all-influential. It looks like human, and yet it is divine. It is man wielding the invisible power of God. In another way also, all is not hidden in the life of such a man. The hosts of darkness comfort, compass him about. They see him and know him, even when man sees and knows him not. They put forth the utmost of their craft and power to ensnare or overcome him. He is but one, and they are legion. They know no pity, they allow no breathing, they give no quarter. The strife is awfully unequal, yet it must not be fled from. One against thousands, and these mysteriously invisible. Each one mightier far than he. 
help from his fellow saints he cannot look for. They have their own battles to fight, and besides their help would avail nothing. He must fight, and he must overcome alone. Again, Bernard continues, take Bernard's own description of his of this solitary conflict. Quote, I live in the most lonely, melancholy desert, about 18 miles from Albany, for it was not thought best that I should go to Del- the Delaware River, as I believe I hinted to you in a letter from New York. I board with a poor Scotchman. His wife can talk scarce any English. My diet consists mostly of hasty pudding, boiled corn and bread baked in the ashes, and sometimes a little meat and butter. My lodging is a little heap of straw laid upon some boards, the little way from the ground, for it is a log room without any floor that I lodge in. My work is exceedingly hard and difficult. I travel on foot a mile and a half, the worst of way almost daily and back again for i live so far from my indians i have not seen an english person this month these and many other circumstances as uncomfortable attend me and yet my spiritual conflicts and distresses so far exceed all these that i scarce think of them or hardly mind but that i am entertained in the most sumptuous manner the lord grant that i may learn to endure hardness as a good soldier of jesus christ Woe to him, uh, this is Boner again, I think now. Woe to him if he bleaches or yields one footbreadth or even entertains the thought of fleeing or proposing terms of peace. It is not the fight of a day, it is the fight of years, the protracted battle of a lifetime, but he fights it well. He conquers. It has been a desperate strife, but he is overcome through the blood of the Lamb. And what glory does God now receive before these defeated enemies in the face of these legions of hell by such a victory? They who are passing smoothly over a summer sea or a sunny earth, untried, untempted, unbuffeted, whose religion has in it nothing of the battlefield, only of the parade, may not understand this. But they who have known the terrors of the warfare and the joy of the triumph, they who have entered single-handed into compact with the rulers of darkness of this world and in coming off more than conquerors have learned to ascribe the glory to him in whose name and might they overcame can understand it well. There is yet another way in which all is not hidden, even in such a life as Brainerd's. No doubt that part of the life that is turned earthwards or or manwards That part which man can see and know is much veiled with little else, perhaps, than occasional beams straying through. But let us not forget that there is another part or aspect of his character, that which looks heavenward and godward, and whatever may be the dimness of the earthward aspect, the heavenward one is unutterably bright, and that brightness has its witnesses, witnesses who can see it all and appreciate it all, the angelic hosts, who desire to look into these things, and to whom, as we read, is made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The under part of the clouds that float above us in the firmament does oftentimes cheer us with its brightness. But what is that brightness as it shows itself to us, us who are looking up to it on earth, compared with the burst of radiance which the upper surface of these same clouds must present to the eye that can look down upon it all from above? So with the saint's life, it is only its underside, its darker aspect the, uh, that um, we see. Its upper side, its brighter aspect is turned to the gaze of heaven and is always visible to the dwellers in the upper kingdom. They see it and stand in awe, 
They see it and praise. They see it and love. They see it and learn the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge and grace of a redeeming God. What inconceivable glory may thus go up to God from the unseen life of the saint before that innumerable company of angels. Such was Brainerd's life. While here it was but its lower surface that men saw. Its upper surface was only visible from above. But now that he has gone to be with Christ, that upper surface is now turned to us and shines down on us with unhindered radiance. His diary, laid before men, is the full unveiling of that which was once hidden, so that in it we now can see what, during his earthly sojourn, could be seen only from within the veil. It was no life of vulgar incident or exciting changes. It was not coloured with romance or sentiment. It had no originality about it, save that of acting out all that he believed. It was not made up of many parts, nor filled with varied doings, nor diversified with manifold schemes. It was thus far a monotonous life, a life of one plan, expending itself in the fulfilment of one great aim, and in the doing of one great deed, serving God, so that at its close he could say, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Again, Bernard comments, thus he spoke from his deathbed, quote, I was born on a Sabbath day, and I have reason to think I was newborn on a Sabbath day, and I hope I shall die on this Sabbath day. I shall look upon it as a favour, if it may be the will of God, that I should do so. I long for the time, oh, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariot? I am very willing to part with all. I am willing to part with my dear brother John and never to see him again, to go to be forever with the Lord. Oh, when I go there, how will God's dear church and earth be upon my mind? Afterwards, the same morning, being asked how he did, he answered, I am almost in eternity. I long to be there. My work is done. I have done with all my friends. All the world is nothing to me. I long to be in heaven, praising and glorifying God with the holy angels. All my desire is to glorify God. He walked this earth as one hastening to be done with it, yet glad while in it to be spent for God. And though in some respects his life does look like an unfinished one, an unfulfilled career, yet he did marvel marvellously much in little time, and he has left behind him in his example, a quickening influence, which during a century he has wrought blessedly in many a soul. His mantle may not have been caught, but the fragrance of his name and memory has come with a stimulating power, we may say, to thousands. This is something worth living for. How great the honour and the joy! No man who lives near to God lives in vain. He may not be conscious of doing anything directly for others, yet his life is putting forth a power and an influence which he understands not. Unknown to himself, he is doing much for God and for his fellow men. In his retirement, he speaks and his head and is heard, sorry, though he knows it not. The witness bearing of the closet is a little is a thing little understood, but it is not the less true on that account. It is little believed in, but its efficacy is not the less mighty. It is like one of those secret influences in nature which are not the less powerful because unheeded or not easily accounted for. And then when the closet testimony is arrested, 
Here, by the translation of the witness to his home within the veil, it is renewed in another form. The fragrance it diffuses itself wider than in his lifetime. It becomes more largely known how he lived and how he walked and how he communed with God. He has departed, but his testimony has not departed with him. It survives, nay, seems to acquire new power as well as extend itself over a more ample circle. His memory lives after him and ceases not to speak and operate for ages. The life of the loneliest saint thus becomes at length manifested. It shines out and is seen. That which had here but little of attractive luster becomes a many-sided gem, sparkling with heavenly brilliance. The ancients had many a fable about their heroes being caught up from earth and transformed into stars. In the case of such a saint as Brainerd, there is n- this is no fable but a truth and a fact. He walks with God on earth. It may be briefly or it may be through a long life of prayer and toil. And when he passes away to the nearer presence above, it is not to perish and be forgotten, nor is it simply to be had in everlasting remembrance. It is to have the veil removed from his life and its true glory unfolded, to become a star to men forever. Amen. If you've read a biography of um, if you've read a biography of Brainard, it's a truly remarkable story of his uh, missionary to the North American Indians and the astonishing revivals that broke out as a result of his work. Um, it's well worth reading or hearing. Um, if if you look at my um, sermon audio um, page, you will see that uh, I have put a biography of um, of Brainard there which you're welcome to listen to um but uh it's an astonishing story of god's grace